Welcome back to Speaking of Startups, a podcast dedicated to bringing you closer to founders who are building new and exciting companies. Today, we're excited to release our podcast with Justin Kelsey. Justin is the founder and CEO of SwitchFrame, a video-based company that has the potential to do really cool and exciting things in the retail space. I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy listening to Justin talk about how he got to this point and where this company can go from here. Justin, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm so excited that after a long wait, we are finally uh, doing this thing together. So it'll be fun times. Yeah, thanks for having me, William. I'm uh, stoked to be here. So I like it. So right before the holidays, um, everybody's everybody's ready for the end of the year rush. And uh, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about making startups successful. So let's get to it. Yeah, man. So Justin, if you can do us a quick favor and give us your elevator pitch. Yeah, it's hard to uh, hard to to cram everything into one little elevator pitch. You know, I, well, let's, I wear, let's, wear, let's pretend yeah. like we're going to the top of the top of the world elevator or something like that. And then, all right? yeah, top of the world. I you know I wear a lot of hats. We'll put it that way. You know, my main focus. I've always been passionate about video, e-commerce, advertising. So what I'm working on now is a technology platform called SwitchFrame that allows for companies to simplify the video testimonial collection process using an AI teleprompter that teaches their customers how to record the perfect video. And then our platform chops it up, spits it out, makes it embeddable, accessible as an ad, et cetera, for that brand to use. So simplifying real customer testimonials into finished usable videos. That's kind of my main focus. Uh, and then I, you know, as you know, have a, a variety of side hustles in the cold plunge space. I'm an avid DIY advocate. I make a lot of content and YouTube and Instagram content around random DIY projects. So have a lot of passions, wear a lot of hats, but uh, it keeps me, keeps me sane and engaged at the end of the day. I hear you. Let's pause there for a second and kind of talk about the, has it always been the case that you've been kind of the DIY, like sixteen balls in the air juggling away? <laughs> has that has that been you since a, a, a young kid, Justin, or did you kind of grow into that? I, I think it has, William. I you know, admittedly and very transparently talk about the fact that I have really severe ADD, ADHD, and I think I'm always starting new things. You know, I wasn't ever diagnosed with it as a kid, surprisingly enough, but I got diagnosed right out of college and was just wondering why my brain felt different my entire life, why I got bored with, with things super quick, why I was always starting new companies. Every time I had an, a cool idea, I would just say, screw it. I'm going to go start this and see what happens. And, you know, maybe that was a little crazy. Maybe it's a little ballsy. I don't know, but I've, I've always like loved the idea of having a lot of balls in the air. I've never just had one single focus, you know, in high school, I had five companies that I launched and, you know, used that to pay for my college, took a break in college, but after college, got a corporate job and started more companies. And that's kind of always been my MO is, you know, I have a main hustle or full-time job, but then I'm always, you know, playing around with two to three other things that, give me energy, it excites me, give me passion, and ultimately, hopefully make some money off of them at the same time. Making money is a good thing, right? Yeah. And especially when it's like something that, again, doesn't feel like work because you genuinely love doing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's a good point, though, that I mean, you've, you've always been starting new things, right? But at the same time, you know, last time we talked, you've been very purposeful and 
don't know if intentional is the right thing, but you've developed your career quite like quite nicely, right? You've kind of thought about the steps that you wanted to take. So take us through that post-college. Like, what'd you go do? Yeah, kind of nothing at all related to what I'm doing now. Uh, so I studied finance at the University of Florida. That was my undergrad. Uh, I didn't really have a reason why I studied finance. I just knew it would give me a good foundation to go do a lot of things after school, and whether that be starting a company, working a corporate job, et cetera. Uh, so fresh out of school, I actually jumped right into consulting for the reason, again, I just didn't want to pigeonhole myself into one single thing I had to focus on day in, day out, week after week. And I knew consulting would let me do a lot of different projects on a lot of different verticals really quickly. So worked for Accenture, uh, you know, top consulting firm, specifically got into their digital strategy practice. Every month, two months, three months, I had a new client, new project, new set of problems that we were solving. Uh, and this kind of kept my, my hungry ADD brain satisfied with always having something new and different where I was never just like doing the same role and responsibility week after week. It was almost like building a Swiss army knife of business skills with, without getting an MBA, just way more applicable. Uh, and so that was kind of what pulled me directly after college, did that for about four years, climbed the ranks at Accenture before my colleagues at Accenture jumped over to Bank of America and pulled me with them and said, hey, we're starting this brand new digital strategy and emerging experiences team for the bank that's like really high tech work that's never been done by the bank before. There's no red tape in the kind of projects that we do, like crypto wallets and like digital innovation and fintech investing and, you know, incubation for startups. And I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty sweet. I didn't think the bank did that. Uh, and so I went on board of that team. There was like five of us. Uh, the team was based in San Francisco, but I was here in Charlotte, um, all ex McKinsey, BCG consultants and really, really brilliant people, honestly, way smarter than me that I could learn a lot from in the, the two years that I was there just on how they approached building businesses, frameworks, problems, you know, how to tackle truly like any solution. And that ultimately kind of led me to, I don't know if we want to jump ahead, but like leaving that role to go finally start my next business and, and leave the corporate life for good. Yeah. What, um, what were some, you know, what were, as you, as you build out and as you build out companies, um, but as you if you started to build them out post Bank of America, post Accenture, like what what have you learned? Like how important were those roles for you as you start to grow through some of the opportunities and challenges that being an entrepreneur naturally presents? Yeah, great question, William. So the most tangible skill I would say that I picked up over the course of that was how to build business cases and do pro formas and just build, you know, working financial models, whether I was doing that for clients at Accenture, every time we had a new idea for the bank for a very specific technology we wanted to build or acquire or, you know, find a startup that did it, we had to build a business case for it. Uh, so I really was able to take those skills again that I learned from my team that had worked at McKinsey and YouTube and Google and all these like really big both tech startups and consulting firms and saw how they approached starting businesses, valuing businesses, writing business plans. Every single idea I did for the bank the bank over the course of you know uh, the two years, probably 10 ideas. I had to build full-fledged business plans and pro formas and basically treat it as if I was starting a business within the bank for that product line. And was able to really take that then and now apply it to everything I'm doing. So if there was like one lesson I would pull from that for somebody who's still in the corporate life or whether they've already started the entrepreneurial journey, it's that 
learn how to build business cases, pro formas, financial statements, build a working model for whatever this idea is that you want to validate. So you can at least run some preliminary numbers to know, does this have legs? How big is the market? Do your Tam Sam Som market sizing, you know, scenarios, run the financials, see what your first year pro forma looks like. Uh, and, you know, that is all stuff that I probably wouldn't have thought of unless I kind of took that corporate route and worked in consulting and built business cases, but it's been invaluable now for, you know, every company I've started since. Yeah. So, um, really good point. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people go into corporate and they think they can never come out of it because there's no applicability to, you know, small business or startups or whatever it is. And I mean, there obviously is, right. There's a lot you can pull from one to the other as, I'm stuck on the fact that how old were you when you started with Bank of America? What, 24, 25, probably? I think freshly at 25, 26 yeah. tops. Yeah. So give or take. And the rest of the team was in San Francisco and you were in Charlotte. And did you choose to stay in Charlotte or was that a um, like, hey, you can pick up and go to San Francisco for a couple of years and you decided to stick it out in Charlotte or how'd that work out? Yeah. And they're, they're the person who brought me over to that team, my Accenture colleague, she was based in Charlotte. So she had her office here in the Bank of America office. And so I kind of, you know, was under her wing essentially initially. And I probably could have requested to relocate to San Francisco. We, we took trips out there twice a year, meeting with the, the broader team out in SF. But, uh, you know, part of me wishes I would have gone, but then COVID hit and the rent and everything like that, obviously not great. Uh, I was used to living a nice, comfortable lifestyle in Charlotte with pretty relatively low expenses and a relatively high salary because we were a San Francisco-based team. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I just was kind of, kind of enjoying it here, especially having worked in consulting for almost four years and traveling every week and being so far from family and friends. I kind of valued honestly having a home hub where I didn't have to travel, where I could walk to work. I, I bought a house and, you know, it was just nice, like a, a lifestyle I hadn't experienced yet that I kind of wanted to, to ride out a little longer. Yeah. So you're living this nice lifestyle. You've got a good salary. You're living in a quiet little city, I guess not little, but kind of sort of little, right? <laughs> Um, you're making an impact, you're growing as a professional, as an individual, and, you know, you're Bank of America, you know, well-respected brand and everything else. And then, boom, you drop it and why, why, why give it up, right? What was the, what was the impetus or what was the driving force uh, at that point in time that said, now's my shot, now's when I'm leaving? Yeah, great question. I, I think what, led me to that decision personally. This was pre-COVID again. This was January 2020. So about two months before COVID hit, uh, our team, I started kind of seeing the, the tea leaves that our team was maybe really expensive. And all these projects we were doing were kind of five years out from happening. So it was hard to get an ROI from them. So I, I just had a feeling that our team was not going to last forever. We were really new concept at the bank, really high cost center. Uh, and so fortunately, unfortunately, uh, part of my team got let go. We kind of got reassigned. I got moved to a product specific team, a digital product team. Uh, I, again, I don't know what happened at the higher up, but they decided that this, you know, 
team at the bank was was too expensive and the ROI was too far out. And so the more senior people on the team got let go, uh, my my boss and boss above me, uh, and somehow they decided to keep me and just put me on a digital product team as a product manager. And this was fine and dandy, you know, it was easy compared to what we were doing before on my previous role, building business cases, you know, this was a, a walk in the park. But, uh, and tr truthfully, I was probably working maybe two to three hours a day and had the other five hours a day, like just to kind of twiddle my thumbs because they just didn't have enough stuff for me to do. And so I started just thinking to myself, like, okay, I've got some free time throughout the day to think and come up with things and come up with ideas. Like what else is interesting to me? And I've always loved video. Like I said, I've been making videos and travel videos since I was a kid. One of my companies in high school was a videography company. I've been making videos on Super 8 and VHF and since I was you know, a, a five-year-old kid. So I've always loved video. I've always been really excited about e-commerce and products as well. So I saw the rise of e-commerce happening again before COVID even hit. I just kind of saw, again, the tea leaves that Shopify was starting to take off and e-commerce was really becoming a popular channel. And I decided for whatever reason, I was going to start a side hustle doing e-commerce videography. So I was doing it myself initially, filming everything, editing everything just on the weekends after work, you know, kind of as a passion project. Um, again, not really any skills needed for it that you have to go to college for, but just some, something I built over the years. Uh, and it started to get some traction to the point where I hired a, an editor overseas and then another editor overseas and then a Charlotte-based videographer to go do shoots during the day when I had to go work at the bank. Uh, it started to kind of get a little traction as a side hustle still was able to manage it while working at the bank, ended up working for probably about a full year at the bank while this company was growing uh, to the point where the revenue from that company had passed my Bank of America salary uh, and the profit wasn't much far behind that. It was a very profitable business. Uh, and so at that point, I made the conscious decision. Like I didn't really enjoy what I was doing at the bank anymore. I wasn't doing this you know, greenfield strategy that was really interesting to me and put, building these business cases. I was essentially just managing a product in, in our mobile app and it just you know hadn't really excited me anymore and I saw the growth that the agency had had and decided I'm going to jump full-time into this and see what happens and um, you know ended up running that for two and a half years almost three years before uh, you know we had a, a, a merger partnership acquisition, if you want to call it that, with a much bigger agency uh, that now is is running that team and, and continuing to grow it. But uh, really exciting to me, like really kept my passion for, you know, the, the broader course of three years and ended up being an incredibly profitable business that actually paid me far more than I would have made on the trajectory at the bank. Um, and then, you know, that kind of parlayed into what I'm doing now. But yeah, it was crazy, crazy whirlwind. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, um, I mean, always whenever you hear those stories of you know bank layoffs, you always sit back and think about like the true perception of risk, right? Like so many people take the corporate job because they, uh, you know, they can't accept the risk of starting and starting their adventure. But at the same time, there's, there's always risk that sits in the world, right? There's a, a constantly the risk of being laid off if you work for one of the big companies and there's the risk of the business failing if you work for a small company, right? There's just different dimensions of risk. Um, how um how how de-risked or i guess not at all were you are you looking or were you looking at at the um, digital agency i guess you really wanted to see it surpass your previous income to see it have the trajectory before um 
before you were ready to really kind of hit it and make it run, right? Yeah, that was that was kind of my rationale. You know, a lot of my friends and family, I thought initially were going to think I was crazy for leaving this, you know, cushy, easy, especially considering how many hours I was working at the bank job. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> like hourly, I was making, you know, the equivalent of 500 bucks an hour, if you want to like think of it that way. So it was crazy. Um, but I just told myself that even if the scaling of this agency failed, even if I ended up not being able to, you know, build a team and continue to grow it further. At the very least, I had my salary that I was making and I was at least getting fueled by something very passionate to me every day. And I could do the work myself. Like I could shoot these videos. I could edit these videos. Like, yes, it would be like throwing all my previous experience out the window with, with business and consulting and all that, but I could still live uh, a very comfortable lifestyle doing something I was passionate about. And, that was kind of my reassurance to de-risk the situation was that, um, you know, it was something I truly enjoyed doing and, you know, worst case I could do the work myself and believe it or not, like my friends and family all were like, yeah, you absolutely have to go do this. Like everybody I knew was in support of it and, and in support of me leaving the bank because they knew me, they knew my brain, they knew I wasn't meant to be just a project manager, like pitch and hold, uh, doing the same thing day in, day out. And, even if I was working more hours, filming my own content, editing my own content and all else failed, I was doing it myself. Like I would at least be doing something creative every day and something a little different and something that would excite me and, you know, want me to get out of bed every day. So you stuck with that for another year plus, um, two years plus post leaving Bank of America, right? Like what, um, like how did it go? Like post, so you walk out the door from Bank of America, what do you do with it? Yeah. So I think it was April, 2021, roughly a, a little over a year later when I finally left the bank and, you know, similar thing I kind of saw like on my role there it was naturally like, they were like, okay, we're not getting full use out of this guy. So I knew I was either probably going to get laid off or like fired soon. Uh, so I was like, I'm just going to leave before that happens. I don't want to like wait for this inevitably because it might, might've never happened. Uh, so I finally said, you know, screw it. I'm, I'm leaving. And so did that. And basically, you know, I didn't get a lot of time back because I wasn't really working that much there anyways, but uh, it was just freeing, like mentally, knowing I didn't have to check in every day. I didn't have to get on, you know, kickoff calls every day. I didn't have to stress and be online eight hours a day, figuring out stuff to do for the bank, even if there was no work to do. And so I reinvested that energy into building systems. And that was really the the most key part of building that agency. And, and now, honestly, truly building any business was the for forefront, if that's the right word, investments, the initial investment of building SOPs and processes and systems and really crazy intricate flow charts with every detail of how to run the business mapped out. That's where I spent my time. And that ended up being an incredibly valuable use of time going forward because every time I hired somebody, I just figured out what boxes on my SOP flow chart I wanted them to fill. And I said, okay, I don't like doing these, you know, five boxes anymore. I'm going to find somebody to fill those. And okay, now as we're growing more, we have some more revenue and profits to play with. Now I'm going to fill these 10 boxes on the editing side. And now I'm going to fill these boxes as we continue to grow this. So I ended up building, and this took, you know, months initially, but, you know, a three to 400 step SOP for running a creative agency, culmination of books I'd read, calls I'd had with other agency founders, you know, got a consultant um, to, to teach me how to build a video agency from his experience working with other clients. And my time initially was 
not in generating revenue, but building the systems so that I could scale the business later on. And that ended up making us, you know, not only incredibly profitable, incredibly scalable for how small of a team we had, but ultimately increased our valuation and the value of the business at the end of the day as well. That's awesome. So we're going to hop back in the 30 minute time machine. And you said you were, um, ADHD, ADD, right? And so when somebody says that to me, building out flowcharts and SOPs for, um, for months on end, like how do you, um, how do you dig down into that? Right. Like what energy, how does that come out? Is that just, is that a different subset that I'm not? So just talk a little bit about your personality and how you're able to drill down into it. Yeah. Great, great question. I, you know, I, I think, one of the tendencies of, of having really severe ADD is that I can get hyper-focused and it's a pretty common, you know, trait for, for those that do have really severe ADD is you can hyper-focus on the things that excite you and energize you. And for whatever reason, I like love building systems. Like it is like something I can nerd out about all day. Like how can I take something probably way too simple that I don't need to build a system for and like really overly complicated with a lot of systems and processes and steps. And, um, you know, sometimes that's to a fault, like with my own personal branding content and filming stuff for my Instagram, you know, I've built overly complicated systems for, for how I should do that and automate things. And to the point where I then don't stick to the system because it doesn't work, but I could spend, you know, days and days and days just building systems, brainstorming systems. Like I look at it almost like a puzzle for business. And I think that's where my, my ADD kind of became a, a, an advantage was that I could see things maybe outside the traditional boxes. I could rearrange these shapes and add lines and, and connect everything as if it was some giant jigsaw puzzle of building a successful business and operating it. And ultimately like having pretty severe ADHD, I'm, I'm great at building the puzzle, not great at following the puzzle. Um, but I could, I could build the puzzle all day and then I could find the people to follow the puzzle. Um, you know, I'm admittedly very bad at, at following my own systems, but I'm great at building them and, and concepting them. Uh, and same when I worked in consulting, like I loved building SOPs and processes for businesses. I just hated actually implementing them, which is why I was on the strategy team and not the implementation team. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a superpower in a lot of ways. And I think I've just kind of found the ways to use that superpower. Uh, you know, there's the, the downsides of procrastination and not being able to follow systems. And, you know, I have many disadvantages that come alongside with, with having ADD, but I've, you know, in terms of building businesses kind of found the strengths that do complement it. Just finished. I just finished reading um, who not now. Right. So mm. um, how, um, how easy was it for you to start to look and find your who's, to do all the hows that you were creating? Yeah, by far the most difficult part of building any of the companies was, was the who's, uh, especially at the agency, because again, I had no experience hiring creatives previously. I had no experience really working with creatives on a professional scale. I had no experience with building an agency or running a marketing team. You know, I took one marketing class in college that I probably like paid no attention to. I, I did not pay any attention to. Um, so I was kind of just figuring stuff out from scratch. Uh, and so I, I read a couple books for me that were really helpful. Uh, the E-Myth Revisited was one of them that was really powerful in terms of how and who to hire to do what, kind of similar to the book you were mentioning. Um, 
that was probably one of the most important ones. Another one that I read was Built to Sell. Uh, it's probably my favorite book of all time from a business perspective, kind of agency focused, but applicable to any business. Uh, and so I followed what I thought was the perfect process to hiring people, got my first two creatives. They did not do a great job. They just, you know, creatives are very creative and that's a great thing. But in the type of business I was building, we needed them to be creative and very like able to follow boxes as needed because we had essentially built the Henry Ford production line for building video ads at this agency. That that big 300 step SOP is one big production line for making video ads and doing it really profitably and fast. So a lot of creatives just had a hard time fitting into those boxes and understanding it. So I went through probably four creatives before I finally found my two that really helped me accelerate and build the business. Uh, same thing with project managers. I just kind of hired people that looked really good on paper that seemingly interviewed really well, that seemingly had a similar mentality to me. And then when the rubber met the road and actually got them in the role, like it just was not clicking or connecting and admittedly kept some of them longer than I should have when I should have fired people probably a lot faster when I first had the gut feeling it wasn't going to work. Uh, and then towards the end, when I finally had my third project manager that did not work out, uh, I said, screw it. I'm not hiring any more project managers. I'm going to teach my creative team how to be project managers for themselves. Um, and that actually ended up working much better. And I split up the the roles and responsibilities of what was a project manager amongst you know the three of us kind of running the day-to-day -day of the team. And, you know, surprisingly, nobody had any issues with it. We followed the FOPs, everything got delivered on time, and we had no need for a project manager at the scale we were doing. That's awesome. Um, so you've got the agency, you sell it, merge it, um, you know, but at some point in time, you've got it, and then you start switch frame at the same time, right? Or not at the same time, but switch frame is a byproduct of the agency. So where did, where did the two worlds start to diverge enough where you recognize, Hey, wait a second, we're doing this, but this is another business that I think is the direction that we can take in and, and do some pretty cool stuff with, right? Like how did, how did the concept a come and then B how were you able to say, oh, it's not part of the agency. It needs to be different. Yeah, yeah. Great question. I initially discovered SwitchFrame kind of by accident. Like it was never really meant to be its own standalone business. I, through the course of building the agency and seeing how the future of video was evolving, kind of stumbled across this problem that our clients could not collect enough video testimonials from their customers. You know, we were always asking for it to chop into our videos. We said, hey, give us all the testimonials you have like from real customers so we can put these in the ads we're making. And they just like never really had a source of that. They had maybe a drive or a Dropbox folder that they like haphazardly had asked customers to drop content into over the years, but it was outdated. It was like very poorly recorded and just everything about the process was very painful. Uh, and I realized like, it's not impossible to edit video. It's actually a really straightforward process. Again, if you treat it like building blocks, every video we were making as an ad had a framework to it. So there was a hook and a problem statement then an introduction of the product, then a feature of the product, a benefit of the product, a call to action. You know, we looked at video as these building blocks of videos. And I just had the realization one day, like it can't be that hard to build some tool for us to use internally at the agency to help our customers collect this content in a modular fashion that we could use for our ads that we're making for them. 
and started the process like really truly had no idea how to build a software company i could not write it write a single line of code i had no technical background uh you know i was a creative slash business person with like zero technical knowledge uh I'd never even taken a development course or anything like that I, I truly could not write a line of code um now chat gpt has solved that i could write it a lot faster but um i uh I had truly no idea where to go. And, you know, shout out to a couple of guys like Dual Boots, uh, you know, Todd and Barrett and all those guys who kind of mentored me early on in the process. They kind of coached me on what it would take. You know, I realized we were probably what I wanted to do. We couldn't afford a web development agency. We couldn't hire somebody like Dual Boot or any of these like big development partners because I was bootstrapped at the agency. I really just wanted this as a quick, dirty internal tool. I couldn't spend 200 grand, 300 grand, 400 grand building this out. Um, and so I kind of just let the idea simmer for a little while before kind of by happenstance, I was introduced to a young developer at Chapel Hill who was in school and he was really talented and just looking for some side projects. And I ended up hiring him again with the intention of building this internal tool for us to use at the agency to solve that exact problem. We wanted a, a content collection tool we could use to make videos faster. And through that process, as I was telling people about it, other friends, clients, other agency owners, they were like, hey, like we want to use this thing too. This like solves the exact problems we're facing. Why can't we have access to this? And I would tell small businesses about it. And they were like, hey, we want to use this like this. We don't we can't afford an agency, but we could totally afford a tool like this to, to get our content. And that was kind of when I had the realization that I need to like make this its own standalone company and like go hard with it because it's a great idea and I can't just like bootstrap this thing forever. So that's when we made the decision. I was going to raise a funding round. Um, you know, I could have bootstrapped it possibly, but I knew I would accelerate the process and really solidify being first to market if we could get a little bit of funding to grow the development team faster, to bring this thing to market. And so that's, you know, ultimately what we did. So you... Um... Timelines get blurry a little bit, right? Or not timelines, but times uh, uh, timestamps get blurry a little bit. You create SwitchFrame at least based on LinkedIn back in kind of the spring of 2022, right? Yeah, um, about a year and a half ago. So, and it's its own LLC. And then, to your point, you recognize that it's got it's got legs. It's got green space ahead of it, and everything else. At what point in time do you, um, how soon after that do you go try to raise money? Yeah, so I knew when I started calling it SwitchFrame and when I branded it as that, it was going to need capital. So I you know, launched it as a Delaware C-Corp right from the start, knowing that we were going to be fundraising, knowing that an LLC would complicate things. Like I, I knew this was going to be a, a big business. And so again, fortunately, I had a lot of really amazing mentors, even here in Charlotte, uh, you know, other co-founders that had kind of led me through the, or founders that had led me through the fundraising process. And so I knew we needed to fundraise. I didn't really know how to do it or what to do. Um, but shout out, you know, to Alex and Dan from 2U and, you know, Lauren Goodell from Zinnia and everybody else, you know, Paul Rothstein from Nelson Mullins, you know, an attorney down in Atlanta that has become a good friend of mine. I built this like really solid foundation of mentors that essentially said, hey, this is what you need to do. You need to fundraise. Here's how you're going to do it. You're going to use safe notes. You should raise this much. You don't want to raise too much, but you don't want to raise too little. And they kind of guided me through that process. And so we didn't fundraise for a little while. You know, we started the company in 2022. I bootstrapped it pretty much all the way through 2022 uh, and then decided I was going to start fundraising in 2023. So we, you know, I self-funded it to build the initial proof of concept MVP. 
And then, you know, come January, February is when we started really proactively fundraising uh, and, you know, having conversations, you know, different angel funds, different VCs, you know, I, I built a pretty strong network over the years of, of connections to investors, et cetera, and tapped into every single one of those pretty much and got on calls with every single person possible. Uh, and we ended up getting our first couple checks from, you know, pretty, pretty well-known funds and, uh, Got really lucky in that sense and got access to that network of mentors and advisors that got us into even cooler programs and it all kind of snowballed from there. You know, we had a, a first check come from a, a very big uh, VC firm out of New York City. And then from there, we got into the Amazon startups program, which got us, you know, $100,000 of AWS credits and all these crazy resources for free. Uh, and then it, you know, just the snowball kept rolling. No, that's super cool. Um, and um awesome to hear how it starts to spin out i'm curious with your background what was for switch frame what was your go to market strategy right did you how how mapped out was it yeah i mean as as mapped out as it can be like same thing when i did a business case of bank of america i like threw a bunch of stuff at the wall and hoped that it would work and that was kind of the approach i took with switch frame was like i think i know how to go to market with this but realistically I had no clue what i was doing because it was a tech product and i had no experience in that so uh my initial go to market was very similar actually to my go to market for vaxa the agency when i'd launched it and that was build agency partnerships to spread the word a lot faster than just me trying to go off on my own and that still to this day actually continues to be our primary go to market strategy was building really strong referral and agency partnerships that will send clients our direction and be compensated with an affiliate model for every one of their clients they bring on. You know, for example, I can spend an hour on a demo or 30 minutes on a demo with one brand to use SwitchFrame, or I could spend 30 minutes on a demo with a key decision maker at an agency who's going to then take it to 40 brands at the agency and they're going to get a kickback for every brand they bring on. And so, and it also helps them at the end of the day too, because their agency now has better content for their clients. So that has was kind of my initial go to market and that still continues to be my primary focus in terms of go to market. But um, again, we just recently launched our public beta about four weeks ago. So we're still, still discovering what's working. We're still trying a lot of different things. We're at a weird time of year now where nobody's really doing a lot from a B2B, you know, side from, you know, Thanksgiving to Christmas. So we're using this opportunity right now to, take early feedback from our very first beta users and beta users over the course of the last few weeks and, and totally redesigning the experience so that come January, we can relaunch this thing with a, a new face on it, if you will, and hopefully, you know, blow it up from there, go to every single agency in my network and, and really blow this thing up and, you know, ideally start, start raising capital after that for our next uh, big growth push. Um, because every startup is always on the next capital raise, even if they're not on the next capital raise, right, Justin? Yeah, and that's probably one of the most surprising things of this whole journey was that it is a full-time job raising capital and you cannot like realistically focus on the product and be in the day-to-day -day of the product and like really be a visionary and try to raise a capital round at the same time. I mean, it's possible, but it's not sustainable. Um, and I learned that with the first raise. And so my thought was with the first round, we maybe raised a little less than I had initially hoped, but I was able to then go back to building product. We've now built the product, we've finished the product, and now it's a perfect segue to 
go back into fundraising mode full time while our at least our initial product is now completed working, getting traction, getting users, et cetera. Is that what the first fundraise was for was primarily to help build out the product? Essentially to finish the the beta version of the product. It's certainly not full featured. You know, we even if we raised double the amount of money we could have raised, it was more of a time thing. We probably just couldn't have built every single thing we wanted. And I, we shouldn't, honestly, like yeah. our, we shouldn't build every feature because we don't even know if those are the features people want. So our, our thought was let's go to market now in December with a really solid single use case that's kind of full featured for that use case and then start to get feedback and, you know, start to take the agile product approach where we add features, adjust features, remove features based on like every two weeks of feedback we're getting. So naturally another fundraise comes up um, around the corner because you, um, you've spent the first fundraise, right? So 2024, you know, theoretically you'll start a fundraise campaign. Um, what will that be for, right? Is that, is that the fundraise that starts to help you build out the team, from a sales and marketing and infrastructure, like internal infrastructure, is that what you'll raise money for the next time, Justin? Primarily, that is, you know, we're at the point now we've been really scrappy with the small round that we raised initially, and we were able to take it really far and build a platform that, you know, honestly would have probably cost double otherwise if we went to a web development agency. But we've we've gotten really far with it and now it's time to promote it and get the word out about it and, and continue to, to turn it into a full fledged business. And to do that, you know, yes, we need a couple extra developers to, to kind of aid the current team, but more than anything, it's like, let's get the word out there about this. Let's devote a lot of, a lot of our next fundraise, not a lot, but a portion of it, a good portion of it is going to go into sales and marketing, building out that team, whether it's full-time hires or fractional salespeople, et cetera, we just have to get the word out about it is what it comes down to now. So a head of partnerships whose sole responsibility is going to agencies and building these partnerships, since that is our primary revenue driver, uh, as well as, you know, customer service, all that good stuff. And then continuing to bring on some specialized developers to build on this like base foundation that we built with the MVP and beta release. So how, so you, you had a really cool, uh, like, fresh out of school, fresh out of college experience, right? Where you were coming in, you're helping tear down businesses and build them back or not tear down businesses, but I mean, essentially kind of tear them down and figure out how to make them better. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So how often do you tap back into, is this kind of like the first time that you've the break between Thanksgiving and Christmas, are you almost using it to like put back on your consulting hat for your own business and kind of tear it down and build it back up or, or is that just a constant tweaking that you're continually looking back on the business and figuring out, you know, what are we doing? How are we making it better? How, you know, what are we breaking and fixing along the way? Right. Uh, How do you, how do you tap into those old school skills? And it's hard to say old school for somebody as young as you. (laughs) That's all right. We'll we'll stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have throughout the process, you know, kind of a, worn those hats and built the business models and all that stuff. But now that we've kind of launched the first version, you know, uh, roughly four weeks ago and seen the feedback come through and like, now this thing is real, it's live, it's out there. Now is when I can finally say like, okay, where, where am I screwing up? Where are, where am I not focusing? Like, what can I do to, to blow this thing up and where have I not been focusing enough of my energy in doing so? So, you know, Luckily, we got some really good feedback as soon as we launched about, you know, literally four weeks ago. In that first week, I went 
really aggressively to all of the customers who were using the platform and just asking them for their feedback, like first impressions. And then I, I also just took off everything I knew about the business, pretended like I was an outsider using it for the very first time. And I realized like, like, oh crap, this is way more complicated than I hoped it would have been for the average person going to use our tool. Um, and I had this realization that we needed to simplify this thing and that what we'd spent the last six months, 12 months, 18 months building was great for somebody like me or somebody who was really experienced in running ads and a marketer, but almost limiting and way too complicated for the average small business person. And I realized when I looked at our wait list and who was actually signing up for this tool, it wasn't really advanced marketers like me or people who had this experience, it was small business owners. It was, you know, small to medium sized business owners, maybe even, you know, marketing teams at an enterprise, but they weren't incredibly advanced, like in the day-to-day -day weeds of media buying. They just wanted a tool that was simple and easy to use. So long story short, I like went in and kind of picked apart our platform that we had launched with and realized like, Hey, this is, this is way too complicated. Like if I want this thing to work, we need to seriously change things and change it really, really fast. Um, and so again, it still worked. It still would have worked for anybody. I just had to explain it a lot more than I would need to in about a week from now. So we redesigned everything. We kept the, the, the core functionality of the same, but we created a really simplified flow, a really simplified onboarding. I, I went incredibly heavy into customer education and customer service for the last three to four weeks, you know, integrating intercom into our product and having a live chat bot where you can chat with us like at any point in time when you have questions and bugs and feature requests. I, you know, built out product demos and product walkthroughs on the platform. So when you log into SwitchFrame for the first time, now you're guided through how to set up a product, how to create a video, how to do this, how to do that. And it's all interactive and very clean. And that was not something we had when we first launched the beta four weeks ago. So I, I realized very quickly, like we built an overly complicated product. And if I wanted this thing to get legs and take off with the audience that is actually waiting for it, we needed to simplify things and change it. And so I uh, kind of had to like put on the surgeon hands and, and get the team ready and said, hey, I know it's the holidays, but like we've got to crank this thing out while we have this advantage right now, while we have Christmas break and Thanksgiving break on our sides. Like nobody's going to realistically log in and use this tool right now anyways. They just, they burnt themselves out with Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So like, let's use this now, use this time, relaunch in January with a fresh new skin on the, the platform and, and see where it goes. Dude, that's so awesome. So, I mean, I remember when I pressed launch on my software way back in 2013, right? Like you press launch and you're super excited that, man, it's, it's live. It's live. Um, like the lights are blinking and you went, it's live lights are blinking. And then you became your own, like everybody's always scared of somebody calling your, um, your business ugly, right? Your baby ugly. Um, but you became the first person that went into <laughs> your business and called it ugly and started, um, really trying to, figure out, you know, who is my, not necessarily my target market, who's actually the market that's coming to it. And, oh no, is this thing right? It's not, we've got to fix, right? So that's such a, um, a cool lesson for entrepreneurs is, um, you know, you've got to constantly be on who's my client, what am I delivering it to? And is it right for them? And are they going to, are they going to sing about it? Cause ultimately that's what you want, right? You want a singing customer cause singing customers mean you have to do less heavy lifting. Yeah, hundred percent. And like you said, I, I maybe built it with this initial customer profile in mind. And then we realized like actually who was signing up for it, where my like friends and family and colleagues and, you know, former agency contacts that needed something way more simple. And I overcomplicated again, back to my like overcomplicated 
getting like simple things. I probably built a really complex like solution that ultimately worked if you knew how to use it and, and went through the complicated steps. It, it worked amazing. But for the average person, for like my mom's construction company that wanted to use it, like they would have been like lost like crazy. So uh, I don't know if we necessarily changed our target customer profile, but I think we realized, hey, we just need to make a couple small tweaks. We can keep that same customer profile, but we can also unlock 10 times the market that we initially planned for if we just make this thing a simple tool for collecting video testimonials, editing those together automatically and giving a place to embed those testimonials on your website. And that was kind of the big change is long story short, we wanted to create a closed feedback loop for SwitchFrame before SwitchFrame. You'd collect a bunch of videos, it would edit a bunch of videos for you, but you would just end up with a ton of videos. Like you as you know a customer might submit three clips it turns those into nine or 27 clips the business now has 27 clips from you 27 clips from me 27 clips from another person before they know it they have way too much content and it's up to them to post it on social or run it as an ad and most businesses aren't going to do that that's way too much content so our big pivot was why don't we make an embeddable feature for switch frame so that no, automatically all these videos coming in. And for one, we simplified that. So now instead of getting 27 videos, they get two to three. We simplified that. But now it shows up on your website in an embedded grid of content and it closes that feedback loop. So you don't necessarily have to do something with all those videos as an ad, as an Instagram post. It just automatically pushes those to your website and you have this closed feedback loop where your videos are being used automatically. It's awesome. So I'm going to oversimplify this. You build a business that was doomed to fail, um, right? And that wasn't really the case um, and quickly made it, um, you know, go back and use the same terminology, right? You made it sing or um, you made it hum for the folks that were really going to be dialed into it and using it on a day-to-day -day basis. And you did it super quick, right? Like that's your, um, I don't know if it's your first pivot, but it's obviously, and it's not, and to your point earlier, it's not really a pivot, so to speak. It's just an over, it's a simplification based on the, the market that was being drawn into your product. And that's such an important feature, right? Like entrepreneurs build, um, build softwares or they build products and, um, they launch it. And then it's not always the person they think that's going to use it that ends up grabbing a hold of it and using it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad I had that realization now versus getting 200 people into the platform. And then all of a sudden saying like, Hey, hold up, stop using this thing. We're going to redesign it. Wait four weeks. Like, you know, I'd, I'd much rather do it while we have 10 to 20 users in the platform and, and readjust, which is kind of what we're doing. So we're, um, disappointingly coming up to the end of our podcast and I'm going to, I'm going to make us run a little over, um, because I want to talk about, um, your other company that you started, but then I want you to close us off with kind of letting the audience know like what the future holds for you, right? Like where can switch frame, what's the market, like paint the picture of how, how it can grow and how big it can grow. But along the way, um, as you've said in the past, you like to tinker and DIY and do different things. You started um, a company, Chili, which does cold plunging, right? So, um, and so you, obviously you got into cold plunging, which is, uh, I guess, a health um, hack or whatever you want to call it. Is that what it was that initially you were doing it for like a health hack? What, what got you into it initially? Why'd you build it? Keep it somewhat short, Justin, so that we yeah. can again and let everybody see the future of SwitchFrame. Yeah, yeah. So, 
going back to kind of my ADD was the root of this, uh, not in a sense where I just got bored and randomly decided I was going to start a cold plunge business, but more so I had listened to a podcast episode, uh, Huberman Lab, if you're familiar with Dr. Andrew Huberman, Stanford neurobiologist, amazing podcast. I think now is like one of the top in the world podcast wise, but he had done an episode specifically on dopamine and the effect of dopamine on motivation, drive, focus, et cetera. Really long two hour episode, but if you're not familiar with Huberman, really simplifies things and, and takes the really complicated science and makes it applicable and gives you action plan for your daily life on how to use that science. And so long story short, his, uh, thesis on the literature was that dopamine is actually one of the only things or sorry, cold, cold exposure is one of the only things that can naturally affect dopamine levels. And so this concept became really interesting to me as someone who has very low natural baseline dopamine having ADD, I realized, okay, maybe there's something to this cold exposure. And, you know, maybe if I just jump in cold water, I can have focus all of a sudden and, and, and solve this without having to take Adderall or something like that. And so long story short, I, uh, I tried the cold shower thing. Didn't really do it for me. You know, I, I later found out that cold showers actually really don't release dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine like a cold tub does because they don't quite get cold enough. But long story short, I didn't want to spend six to 10 grand buying a cold plunge. I've always been handy. I've loved doing DIY projects. And so I plumbed and built my own cold plunge from scratch in my garage, built it for about three grand, uh, totally kind of my own design, sourced all the parts off Amazon and Home Depot and, and built a fully functional self-chilling, self-filtering, ozone injecting, et cetera, like really complicated cold plunge, posted it on Instagram, started doing it every single day. I would cold plunge every morning. I'd film it, put it on my story uh, and had no intention of starting a business, but people started reaching out to me. Hey, would you sell the plans for this? Or, Hey, would you build me one of these? Or, Hey, how, how can I build one of these? And uh, realized very quickly the market was taking off and people were becoming very fascinated with this concept. And so, you know, long story short, I started a company building them, selling them really as a side hustle. I would do it on the weekends. I'd build a couple tubs, flip them. Uh, we made a, a good amount of money with it in a very short period of time, you know, launched it back in August of 2023. Uh, first month, you know, almost did 80,000 in sales, uh, just like kind of as a side hustle with pretty solid margins. Um, and then unfortunately, like the, the fad kind of died down a little bit and other competitors started coming onto the market and competitors with a lot more money than we had that could blow us out in terms of ad spend. And we never ran a single dollar ad or anything like that, but um, realized like there was just a lot of time being sucked into that business to keep it competitive with all of these other businesses that were popping up selling cold plunges. And I didn't want my focus to be detracted from switch frame. And so I kind of, kind of put it to the wayside. I didn't shut the business down, but uh, I'm not like actively growing it or like marketing it. If somebody orders a cold plunge from our site, I'll still build them one. I love building it and I love sharing cold, cold plunging, but um, I realized I just didn't want any distractions from switch frame being the main focus right now. So now, so now we switch gears. We're, um, it's been fun. It was profitable. It's probably a good business, but it's not a scalable business, right? Um, it's gotten you to the point of having more focus because you cold plunge and that um, increases dopamine and that's helpful and everything else. Um, but um, so now switch frame is January 1st, 2024. Where's it going? Yeah. So this redesign pivot, if you want to call it that simplification, not really redesign, but a new customer experience when you log in, 
we are aiming to have that fully launched by the first version of it by roughly January 1st and the, the finished version of it by January 15th. Um, the reason is I'm going to a big conference on the 15th. I want to be able to demo it there. The conference uh, organizers had mentioned they would use SwitchFrame you know, at, at the conference to collect testimonials from people who went to the conference. So I want to make sure we have like a working, really cool version to demo. And it's a conference of agency owners. So there's about 150 agency owners there who would be active clients of Switch frame and so i want to make sure it's just like shoved down their throats in a good way with like wow this is really cool um so the goal is like relaunch early january get as much traction as possible you know really tap out my network of of founders and anyone who's connected to a small business that could use video testimonials and then you know shift my gears into fundraising mode and you know go out and re kind of tap my network to raise our next round and do everything we talked about to get switch frame to that next level and hopefully dominate the market for the next three to five years, become the first tool that's really doing what we're doing. And then, you know, the goal would be hopefully an acquisition at some point. I know that's a lofty goal, but uh, an acquisition by either one of the major ad platforms, whether that be, you know, meta or TikTok, that would be like an aspirational acquisition, but if we can build a tool that's really valuable to the brands and companies and platforms using their, their tools already, um, or, you know, the various ad tech tools that are out there, I think we are going to build something that's going to make a really, really interesting acquisition. You know, I wouldn't mind like $500 million to one of the major ad tech platforms, but uh, we'll, we'll that's see. a good round number. Yeah. It's nice and round. It feels right. And I think it, it, it truly is possible with the right team and, and closing the next couple of fundraising rounds as we plan. Um, and it, it is a tool that solves a problem that every single business faces. And, you know, I think the market is, is truly massive on it. Yeah. Well, clearly you'll map it out. Um, and then you'll also have the ability to pivot and maneuver as you've shown so far already. Right. So um, really cool product, uh, really um, great story. And uh, you know, again, greatly appreciate you sitting down on a, um, on a Wednesday afternoon and sharing it with us, Justin. Of course. Yeah, no, William, I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, been a really fun conversation. Yeah. So before you get to the $500 million exit, we'll have to have you back on. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the um, opportunities and challenges that arose as you got there, right? I'm sure there will be a lot of them. <laughs> awesome, man. We'll have a good end of the year and good luck in 2024. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it, brother. Read the Citizen Owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.